Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Peter chapter 5. In this closing chapter, Peter gives some final counsel, first to the elders and secondly to the members of the church as a whole. Thomas Schreiner says here, The elders are now addressed because as leaders they may face the brunt of persecution first. Close quote. Historically, in this region, that's exactly what tended to happen. I mentioned that the initial outbreak of formal state persecution in AD 112 lasted only about a year. Christians were good citizens, and the Emperor Trajan decided that he could not afford to eradicate such useful people. But persecution in this region broke out again in the early 4th century. Simon Baker notes that Roman governors were free to punish dissident Christians, shut down some churches, demolish others, and in the case of the bishops in the province of Bithynia Pontus, south of the Black Sea, murder key figureheads in the Christian clergy. According to Eusebius, their bodies were chopped up and thrown into the sea as food for fish. Quote. Baker actually traces a fair bit of the history of Christian persecution by the Romans and notes that in most cases it was directed fairly narrowly at the clergy. Of course, no country can afford to eradicate large swaths of their own population, So it was generally deemed more efficient and productive to target the bishops and the more prominent writers and speakers among the clergy. It was actually rather rare for the Romans to hunt down Christians as a class within the wider empire. So Peter, in the first part of this chapter, led by the Spirit of God, tells the pastors and elders of Bithynia Pontus how to prepare. And he'll move on to provide some counsel for the church as a whole in the closing verses. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, as a side note here, it's just interesting to note that Peter identifies as an elder himself. Every apostle is an elder, though, of course, not every elder is an apostle. Very important to keep that straight. But Peter was both. And so he puts his pastor hat on here in order to speak to fellow pastors. And to be clear, that's what an elder is. An elder is a pastor. The word pastor in English refers to a shepherd. So, as any music lover will know, Beethoven's pastoral symphony is not about members of the clergy. It is about actual shepherds, those who live and work with sheep. A pastor is a shepherd. The word shepherd became a favorite metaphor in the Bible for a leader of God's people because... Probably originally, David was a shepherd before he became king. 
but probably also because the basic principles of shepherding apply equally well to a flock of sheep as they do to a congregation of people. And you can see Peter's use of the term in verse 2 where he tells elders to shepherd the flock of God. He tells elders to pastor. So again, elders are pastors. I know that can be confusing because in North America, in the evangelical church, we often distinguish between elders and pastors. Pastors are elders who get paid. And that may be how we use the terms, but it's important for us to see them here in their original biblical reference. In the Bible, elders are pastors, pastors are elders. These are overlapping terms. These are the people commissioned and empowered to feed and lead the people of God. According to Peter, it's very important that the elders and pastors do this job in advance of the storm that is coming, because storms tell the truth about what you've built. When a storm comes, you'll find out real quick how healthy and stable your flock is or your house is, switching metaphors. Once a storm hits, you can't make any further improvements. You just go down to the basement and wait for your final report card, as it were. The storm will tell the truth about the strength and stability of what you've built. But if you feed your people well, and you ground your people solidly on the unchanging rock of Jesus Christ, if you teach them the true gospel from the whole word of God, as the Apostle Paul said that, that he had done in Ephesus, he said that in Acts chapter 20, if you do that, then you should expect that when the storm hits, your people will stand. Like the house that is built upon the rock, the rains will come, the flood will rise, but well-led, well-fed people or well-built, well-constructed houses will remain, thanks be to God. Therefore, in advance of persecution, pastors, elders must generously feed and wisely lead the flock of God. Peter adds, not under compulsion, but willingly. Pastors who are constantly complaining about the difficulties associated with the ministry should probably find other work to do. It is a great privilege to be a pastor, and though it is not an easy job, my experience and my expectation is that God will never give you a task for which he does not also provide the supply. So do your job with joy, with gratitude, and with quiet resolve. Peter also says that pastors should not go into the ministry for the money. Now, in our culture, we might think that an obscure concern for Peter to have, but actually in many cultures, particularly in poorer cultures, the pastor does tend to be honored and therefore paid somewhat out of proportion to the rest of the population. You can see the Apostle Paul pushing back against that tendency in his letter to the Corinthians. Pastors should be fairly paid, Paul talks about that as well, but not disproportionately paid. Pastors are not rock stars or CEOs and should not be paid as such. I think the general principle here is that the pastor should be paid enough that the needs of his family do not pull him away from the ministry, either emotionally or actually, but not so much that men begin to seek the ministry because of the possibility of getting rich. There's a happy medium there that churches should work hard to find. Peter also reminds pastors not to be domineering. Some pastors will need encouragement to be strong. We think of Timothy, for example, falling into that category. But many pastors need to be reminded to be gentle. We mustn't break the sheep. The sheep aren't there to hold up our platform. They are there because God loves them and has called them 
and has died for them in Christ. So they must be loved and fed and cared for and at times carried until we all cross the finish line into glory. There is a sort of strength that is applied to the bear and the lion, but then is veiled and hidden from the sheep. And pastors must aspire to find and locate that strength within themselves. Above all, the pastor must set an example. He doesn't need to be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But he should look like a sinner saved by grace, growing by one degree of glory to the next into the same image as Christ. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit should be visibly at work in the life of the pastor. And finally, he must look to the chief shepherd for his affirmation and reward. If pastors become addicted to the praise of their people, they will gradually forfeit their usefulness to the congregation. If they become addicted to the goodwill of the culture, they will forfeit their witness to the community. If they seek the well done of the master, however, they will serve faithfully and fruitfully within their charge. In verses 5 and following, Peter begins to address the congregation as a whole. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Wayne Grudem suggests here that given the allusion to Ezekiel 9 that we discussed in the previous episode, verse 5 should be understood to mean roughly, likewise those who are not elders, or likewise the rest of you. And I think that's exactly right. You will recall that in 1 Peter 4, there was an intentional allusion to Ezekiel 9 and the story of the marking angel and the judgment of God upon the city of Jerusalem. The angel marked out all those who sighed and groaned over the wickedness of the city, and then God gave instructions for judgment and punishment to fall on the people. He said to the next angel in this process, he said, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house, closed quote. So that's the pattern in the Bible. Begin with the elders. And Peter appears to be following this pattern. Judgment begins with the household of God, and that judgment begins with the elders. So elders, make sure you're doing your job. That's verses one to four. Now, having dealt with the elders, we're going to talk to everybody else. The first thing Peter says to them is be subject to the elders, 1 Peter 5, 5. The apostle to the Hebrews says the same thing to his people. He says in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Close quote. Now, for whatever reason, evangelicals in North America seem to skip over these sorts of verses in the Bible. These verses don't fit through our cultural filter. We are too independent, too rebellious, and too anti-authoritarian by half. It is all too common to hear Christians talking about how they can be perfectly fine as believers on their own. There's certainly no need for them to join a church. But the call of the Bible is far higher than that. It is higher even than the call to join a church. Jonathan Lehman hits the nail on the head when he writes, Christ does not call us to join a church but to submit to a church, close quote. I think that's exactly right. 
The bar is higher than joining a church. The bar is submitting to a church. And I I dare say that many people that have joined a church have no intention of ever submitting to it. As soon as the elders begin sniffing around them about some sort of sin or immaturity in their lives, they promptly resign their membership and go to the church across town. Well, that's not good for you. And it's not good for the witness of the church as a whole. So Peter begins here. If you want to grow as a Christian, then join a church and, and write a letter to the elders expressly communicating your desire to come under their oversight and authority. Submit to the elders. Now, that's not an optional add-on. That's not, that's not for the super spiritual. That's a clear command. Charles Spurgeon wrote once, saying, Some Christians have never yet been baptized. How will they answer for willful neglect of a known duty? Closed quote. It's a good question. I think you could easily paraphrase that question to read, some Christians have never yet submitted to the authority of a local church and to a specific group of elders in a local church. How will they answer for willful neglect of a known duty? That's a good question too. And I don't have a good answer for you. The text here is pretty clear. To prepare for final judgment, you need to find a good church with godly pastors and elders who are reading the Bible and and trying to act the way they've been told to do in light of the scriptures. You need to find a church like that, and you need to submit to their authority. Now, of course, as we've said already, all submission is conditional. It's limited. Just as a wife would not submit to any unbiblical command from her husband, or just as a servant would not be willing to blaspheme on command if his boss ordered him to do so, so also submission to elders is submission to leadership that falls within biblical parameters. I think it's necessary for us to say that, but then having said that, I think we again need to stress the general principle here, which is that all believers need to find and submit to a local church. Now, in verse 5, Peter tells these folks to submit to their elders, as we've talked about, and to maintain a humble spirit toward each other. He relates that to humility before God in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter uses the same word for humility in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, he uses it in a noun form, and then in verse 6, he uses it as a verb. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Philippians 2, 3 to 4, when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Close quote. Humility, therefore, means living and serving for the benefit of others rather than for ourselves. It means seeking not our own interests, but the interests of others. A Christian gives his or her life away in service to other people, most particularly to other Christians. 
That's how you build a storm-proof community. That's how you prepare for the pressure of formal persecution, by building a community built on humility and loving service. He also tells them to trust God, and he reminds them to be sober-minded. Sobriety of thought is a major Petrine theme. By the way, it was also a major Johannine theme, almost like they'd studied under the same master. John, in his Apocalypse, talks about the whore of Babylon who rides on a beast. The whore represents the seductive power of culture, and the beast represents government and political structure. They are both agents of the devil that attempt to persecute and destroy the Christian church. That is to say that she uses political power structures in her attempt to destroy the church. That's what the image is trying to communicate. Listen to what John says about the whore of Babylon. He says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Close quote. So in the Revelation of John, Christians are warned against the demonic seduction of culture. Don't drink the wine of her sexual immorality. Don't drink the cultural Kool-Aid. Stop listening to her. Stop reading her books and watching her talk shows, lest you begin to think and speak like her and share in her sin and her judgment. Come out from her and be sober-minded. Peter says the same thing to his people here, not by means of an apocalyptic vision, but by means of straightforward prose. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. You have an enemy. You live in a world filled with beasts. The, the devil is a lion and he wants to destroy you. He wants to seduce you. He wants to intoxicate you. He wants to lure you away from your faith in Jesus Christ. So be aware of that, brothers and sisters, and resist him. Resist him by standing firm in your faith. Of course, that's all you have to do to defeat the devil. You don't have to seize control of the government. You don't have to take back the culture, whatever that means. You just have to stand firm in your most holy faith. Stand firm in your faith and you win. Now, winning, of course, doesn't mean not suffering. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So winning doesn't mean that. Winning means standing firm and doing your job and being found faithful at the time of Christ's return. That's winning. So do that. Stand firm. Suffer for a little while. And then enter your eternal glory. Thanks be to God. In verses 12 to 14, the apostle brings his epistle in for a landing. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. By Silvanus there means that Peter dictated this letter by Silvanus. Silvanus wrote it down. He may have helped with the Greek phrasing, though Peter, as a fisherman, probably spoke half-decent Greek himself. 
But given the price of writing material, the use of a professional scribe who could write efficiently and clearly and in tiny little letters was standard practice. She who is at Babylon is actually a somewhat coded way of saying, I'm writing this letter from Rome. Babylon at this time was nothing more than a pile of stones and sand in the desert. Peter wrote this letter from Rome, but Babylon in the Bible was the place of exile. And so Peter is saying in a phrase, in a way laden with scriptural imagery, the Roman Empire is not our home, brothers and sisters. It is temporary exile. So build your homes, get married, live your lives, pray for the peace of the city, right? Jeremiah 29, 7. But don't get too comfortable here. This world is not your home. You're just a passing through. So love one another, keep the peace, and keep your eye on the kingdom that is coming. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you for